Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy. And today I'm talking to Rainsford Stauffer. She is a freelance writer and Kentuckian who is the author of two books, An Ordinary Age, Finding Your Way in a World that Expects Exceptional, and her just-released new book, All the Gold Stars, Reimagining Ambition in the Ways We Strive. Welcome, Rainsford. Thank you so much for having me for this conversation. I'm so excited. I found you on Twitter, and as soon as I read about your book and the idea of this book and the notion, I'm like, oh, this is somebody I want to have on the show because this is somebody. <laughs> this speaks to me deeply, the notion of ambition. And I think maybe some of us are particularly wired that way. But you say in the book that sort of ambition starts from a very young age in America where we're socialized to be ambitious. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I think one of the most interesting things that I found over the course of reporting was how early ambition or a sense that you should be ambitious starts for some of us and how inherently that sense of ambition is often hitched to self-worth and sense of self. And I don't think ambition is usually a word we throw around as kids. At least it wasn't for me. It's not necessarily a word that I remember hearing. But when I look back, the characteristics of ambition were totally there. And I think now when you zoom out and kind of look back in retrospect, or if you're someone that has your own kids looking at their lives, these markers of what it means to be ambitious, what it means to be someone who's motivated, who's driven, who's a good listener, who's a good student, it starts so early, way before we've had a chance to define what we're ambitious about on our own terms, and often in circumstances like school, where we're not necessarily opting into an idea of ambition, we're trying to conform to it, we're trying to meet it, but it's not something that feels self-driven all the time. Yeah, like perfect attendance award or something like that's just presented to you when you're five as something that you should be striving for. You don't necessarily choose it. You just sort of like, well, everybody thinks that. I could go on and on about perfect attendance specifically. <laughs> I think that there's so many angles to look at that one through. I think that that is such an ableist policy and idea of achievement. That one was kind of the bane of my existence when I was little because I was a kid who was sick all the time, who grew into a chronically ill adult. And I think all the time about the awards that are given out that are really less about celebrating someone's accomplishment or what's important to them or what's special about them and are really more about measuring and metrics. 
Mm-hmm. How much of this did you do? How fast did you do it? How accomplished can we say you are? And it's really interesting to think about in retrospect, so many of the things that, you know, when I was younger, I would have thought of as a prize or a reward or some sort of celebration of something were actually just about measuring how much of the thing you did and very often how quickly you did that thing. Yes. In the book, you sort of tease out the outcomes of the ambition from being ambitious. You say for you, I thought this was interesting, that for you, it wasn't actually what was on the report card or, or getting the trophy. It was what it meant or what were you after? If it wasn't the trophy itself, what were you after? Totally. This was such an interesting thing to try and tease out because when I first started talking to other people about this, I think that a lot of times we would go into those conversations with the assumption that we were both, you know, straight A, really quote unquote, high achieving students. And I kind of fell into a gray area there where I had the effort of an overachiever. I really wanted to please. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted everyone around me from my peers to my teachers and coaches and whatnot to be comfortable. But I was not, I wouldn't say the star at anything. I was not the best student in any subject. I was never the best dancer in my extracurricular activity, but I found ways that I felt like I could earn being good enough, not necessarily through the outcome, but through the effort I put in. So I would pour in all of this time, all of this energy, all of this angst to not necessarily achieve the quote unquote gold star or the perfect grade, but to feel like I had done a good job. And I think I derived for a long time, a lot of my self-worth and a lot of my sense of security from that. And I think the obvious problem that I can now, you know, look back and see is that as soon as you don't do quote unquote your best or you realize your best might change as your needs and expectations and circumstances do, all of a sudden you're not saying, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. I can't cope with that. You're saying I've lost a piece of myself and I don't know how to get it back because it's not about failing to meet the outcome. It's about failing to live up to who I thought I was trying to be. Oh, here's the phrase in your book that I circled 17 times that you were creating a lifetime of discomfort in the name of earning goodness. And I thought, okay, there's not a listener to this podcast that wouldn't identify with that. I want to be good. So I will accept this discomfort so that somebody else will think that I'm good. Well, and it ties into, I think, so much, you know, now as an adult in work, in different relationship circumstances, even definitely as a kid or as a student, you know, we're given all of these metrics of what it means to be good at something, whether that something is school, whether that something is your job, whether it's a hobby you're really passionate about. And I think a lot of the time the emphasis on pouring the most effort you can into something, doing quote unquote your best, I think what gets lost in that a lot is that a lot of this dips into very scary territory where it's no longer about being good at your job or being good in that class. It's about your worth and deservingness as a human being. And that was one of the most disorienting realizations of my young adulthood and something I now think about all the time, especially when I talk to young people and I talk to current students. It's like, we're really not having a conversation about school or productivity or work anymore. We're having a conversation about worth. And I think that's where things can get very complicated very quickly. What was the moment for you 
I think it's like, it's always a process, right? But when did you start to question the notion of ambition, what it is, and how maybe you had centered it in your life at a cost? That's a great question. So I remember being 13 or 14 years old, and I wouldn't term it as questioning ambition at that point. I'm not sure that's the language I would have used, but I thought about it in regard to dance in particular and how much of my life and my work and my time and my identity was all wrapped up in this thing. And I remember having flashes of, I'm not sure this feels right anymore. This feels like it's taking up a lot of room. It feels like it's controlling me more than I am controlling it and kind of not knowing how to put the brakes on because nothing at that time was overtly wrong. Like there wasn't something I could point to and go, oh, this is out of balance or oh, this specific thing didn't feel right. And it was just flashes of that feeling. So it became really easy to kind of press that down. But it really wasn't until much, much later into my adulthood in the middle of writing my first book, after I wrote my first book, that I started thinking that something about my ambition just didn't feel right anymore. It didn't feel true anymore. It felt like I was working, 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 and striving, 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 but couldn't tell you what the meaning was supposed to be anymore. I knew that some of the things I was doing were probably objectively good. I knew that they were things that I think deep down I wanted to do, but through a combination of just a perfect storm of physical health issues flaring up, mental health issues flaring up, a lot of really profound and disorienting changes in my personal life, all kind of crashing together at once, made me think I don't have that second gear anymore. I don't have the capacity to push myself the same way I did. I feel like I have lost something and I don't know how to get it back. And so when I started thinking about questioning my ambition and kind of looking twice at it, it really came from a place initially of I've lost something about myself that at the time I thought of as my only redeeming quality. What am I going to do? And it wasn't until I started having the opportunity to talk to other people about their ambition that it opened up the floodgates of all these other questions about, you know, what is ambition and where does it come from and how does it get packaged and marketed in these ways that are supposed to be aspirational but actually end up feeling really bad for a lot of us? And why have I ascribed all of my self-worth to a quality that I'm saying I can lose? What does that say about me? And so I think that really the turning point was getting to talk to other people about how they were thinking about it. You say this in the introduction. You say this book isn't about how to be ambitious or whether to be ambitious. It asks, what is our ambition for? Where, where did this even come from? This notion, which is when you stop and think about it, it is kind of mind blowing, right? Why did I accept this whole cloth and what is it even? And is it the same for everybody? Who gets to be ambitious? Okay, we're going to take a break because there's so much more to talk about. We're talking to Rainsford Stauffer. She is the author of the new book, All the Gold Stars, and we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. 
Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Rainsford, I wanted to talk about ambition and women because there's a whole other sort of turn of the screw that happens For females, we are both told to be ambitious and told that we shouldn't be too ambitious. So can you you walk us through some of those contradictions? So when I think of ambition and who gets to be ambitious in particular, I don't think we can have a complete conversation about that without unpacking some of the societal, economic, cultural, and personal expectations or frameworks that that gets packaged in. And I think that there's a lot of two in ambition. I think we're very quick to criticize people for being too ambitious, for kind of speaking out of turn, for being a little bit too much, for being a little bit too loud. And then I think the script flips and we're very quick to criticize people in the reverse for not being ambitious enough, for not doing the right things, for not trying as hard as they could possibly try at the things that our society considers really valuable and really important. And that usually looks like a script that's not going to be compatible with the ways that a lot of us are living our lives. Maybe we are ambitious. We're just not ambitious in the framework that ambition is packaged. In the book, I talked to Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez, who is a writer and creator of the newsletter Too Ambitious, who talked to me a lot about people absorbing sort of these offshoots of girl boss messaging where the mentality was kind of, you aren't ambitious enough. You weren't assertive enough. It's kind of on you that you didn't do enough to get yourself into whatever place or circumstance or work title that you want to be at. And then as Stephanie points out, because people are told to act in ways that are based on white, cisgender, male norms of success, 
that can really backfire because if you express those qualities as someone who is not that archetype of ambition, you're more likely to face personal and professional repercussions for doing so. Definitely recommend checking out Stephanie's work for more on that. But I always think of the too much conversation because I think of all the times that I was told my ambition was too much. And then all of the times I was told I wasn't ambitious enough and I should be trying harder. And I've had so many versions of that conversation with the women in my life and the people in my life in general that I don't think there's ever going to be a point where we win. I don't think there's ever going to be a moment where it's like, yes, you did it. You have been just the appropriate amount of ambitious and we can all live with that. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it's really important for people to be able to take a step back and define it on their own terms. Because when you think about it, the definition of what it means to be ambitious in a traditional framework, to me, seems quite narrow. Yes. There's a book called The Best of Everything, a novel that came out in 1958 about young women in a typing pool, sort of mad men from the secretary's point of view. I produced a play about it, but why I'm bringing it up is like the central thing about this novel, which is a fabulous read, is about a, a young woman starting out her career in the 1950s on Madison Avenue. And she, the whole book is about the word ambitious and how she must be ambitious, but not too ambitious. And should she wear a hat to work? And should she do this? And should she stay late? And, and that she is Caroline, the, the main character's name is both castigated for not being ambitious enough and for being too ambitious and too loud and modulating her voice and I mean, you read the book now, it's 60, 70 years ago, and it feels like not that much has, has changed, that we're still like being told to get something right that will consistently elude us because we don't look like the person who gets to be ambitious. It's really extraordinary. I think of this, a version of this when I talk to students, usually high school age students a lot, because I think it's so much of the same thing where what does an ambitious person sound like? What kind of words do they use? What kind of classes do they take? How do they present themselves? What does that look like? I think that endless list of questions and outdated and harmful norms and binaries of what and who gets to be considered accomplished and even what those accomplishments are Every time I think of it, I think of all of the people that we're leaving out and all of the incredible ideas and dreams that we're not going to get to experience as a society because of how we have systemically boxed people out. And I think when you think about it that way, it's such a profound loss. We're losing so many incredible voices and people that we need because it's not that they aren't meeting the expectations of ambition. It's that ambition is way too limited. In the book, you say, I'm paraphrasing here, that only certain young people are worthy of having ambition and in our investment in them. Other kids get to have grit, which is my co-host's <laughs> it's her bet noir to talk about, oh, grit, you get to have grit because your life is so difficult. Good for you. And then we, you know, kids whose lives aren't difficult, like you need to be more gritty. Some kids get to be ambitious and some kids maybe don't. I mean, I had never really thought about that until you brought it up in the book. It's really interesting. It's one of my favorite things to get to talk to people about. And thinking of that section in particular, I got to have a conversation with Nicole Lynn Lewis, who's the founder of an incredible organization, Generation Hope, and also wrote a really phenomenal book called Pregnant Girl. And what Nicole talked to me about is that the disparities across the board in K through 12 education and the sorting and decision making on 
which students are going somewhere, which students are the high achieving ones, who isn't. It happens so early that so much of that is built into not just a student's educational experience by the time they make a decision on college or not, but it's also built into their identity. And I think that that's where another way that the system just falls really, really short. Because one of the things I loved about that conversation with Nicole and loved not just what she talked about with me in the book, but also the work that she does is all young people, all people in general deserve the resources and the space to look out at their lives and go, who do I want to be? And what makes me happy? And what do I bring to the table that I want to foster? Not just the people for whom achievement looks a certain way that we know how to categorize and measure. I think that when we give people, not just students, all people, the space and resources to answer some of those big fundamental questions for themselves, I think we emerge with a much more robust definition of what it means to be ambitious. It's not just about grades and did you graduate on time and did you know your major when you were going into college? Did you get a four-year degree? Did you move away from home to get that degree? Like you can just, the list of measurements is endless. And I think we miss so much when we only think that that can look a certain way. Let's talk a little bit about ambition and parenting, because as you point out in the book, parenting is being ambitious twice, especially in 2023, both for yourself and your own parenting skills. And are you doing it right? And are you doing what the TikTok said you should be doing? And then on behalf of somebody else. So it gets even more complicated. I guess there's no question in there. but <laughs> No, there's... Let me tell you, you're correct. You are correct when you say that. <laughs> there's so much to say. And I, I knew from the outset that I wanted to talk about ambition and parenting specifically because I have a lot of friends who are parents. I spend a lot of time in conversation talking about the different ways that intersects. And what blew my mind and probably shouldn't have is how many different versions of expectations around ambition just intersect with parenting. We're not even touching the work part because as you point out, there's being ambitious on behalf of another human being. And what does it look like to be an ambitious parent? There's the parent's own ambitions, which I feel like are limited by societal perception of what it means to be ambitious at all, in which caretaking is very rarely included. There's ambition that's narrowed by lack of resources like childcare and living wages and paid leave, which make parenting, I think, more sustainable rather than inherently self-sacrificing. And the overwhelm just in the conversations stood out to me. And so when you think about how people are supposed to move through the day to day, I don't think that there's a way that we don't set parents up to fail in conversations about ambition. Number one, because there's an endless list of expectations. And number two, there's so little support or resources at a systemic and structural level to make any of that feasible. And that's the part that's still kind of blows my mind is we want to give out all of these expectations and all of this criteria of this is what it means to be a good parent and a good worker and a good neighbor and all of these things without giving people any of the support to actually have those things. And if your mother, I think this might be true for all parents, but more for female parents that you're not supposed to be too ambitious once you're a parent, that your child should be your primary only focus. And if you have ambitions outside of your child raising, that that's 
mm, either suspect you don't mean it or it's inappropriate. Speaking from experience, <laughs> right? Absolutely. And I, I heard about that in a lot of conversations that I had. And I think that the thing that came up time and time again is because resources are presented as so scarce or so compressed, it put people in a position where they did feel like they had to choose. You know, I think of one parent I spoke to who really wanted to be at all of her daughter's PTA meetings, really wanted to go to all of the after school activities. But because of her work schedule and because she was earning a college degree and that academic schedule, none of that was set up for her to be able to do those things. She was penalized in both directions, both for being the parent that quote unquote didn't show up for her kid, wasn't at every activity and dared to have something else to do and didn't get to do the things that she really did want to do with her daughter because the economic and educational circumstances weren't set up for those things to coexist. And when I think of ambition and parenting, even outside of paid work, work outside the home, I think of the ideal worker myth, which I think comes from a lot of ideology around gender roles and is sort of rooted in the idea that there was a hardworking person who worked outside of the home, usually a man, historically a man, while another person, usually historically the wife, stayed home to tend to the household and childcare duties, etc. So from the jump, the whole idea of what it meant to be an ideal worker was grounded in the idea that there was someone else who was basically fulfilling that same role inside the home. And I think that's why people lose out in both directions. We haven't created a circumstance for parents or for caregivers to feel good and feel supported in their ambition in either direction. And I look at that and I see all kinds of rampant policy failure. I see failure to acknowledge caregiving is an ambition. I see failure to acknowledge that parents are also human beings who have ambitions and dreams beyond just parenting. And I say this as someone who is looking at this from the outside and is just listening to a lot of people talk about it. This isn't something I've experienced firsthand yet, but I think that what kind of coils around the ideas of work and parenting and identity is this idea that there are a lot of expectations given in multiple conflicting directions and resources are very rarely provided. We're talking to Rainsford Stauffer. She is the author of the new book, All the Gold Stars, and we'll be right back. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer 
protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Rainsford, in our third segment, we always like to pivot to sort of solutions. Like we understand the problem, but what might be our path out? And I'm going to read a quote from your book. Can we become ambitious, not about what we might earn, but about the kind of lives we want to live? What does that invitation mean? I think it means a couple different things. I think first and foremost, I'm always going to think in terms of how do we give people the material resources to decide what ambition looks like on their own terms, what they want to work for, and how that fits into the context of their lives. So over the course of reporting, what I heard a lot about were very tangible more policy-focused solutions. A lot of people talked about the need for paid leave. A lot of people talked about what a universal basic income would do to their ambition. Childcare came up over and over and over again. So I think that there are those larger structural solutions that everything else kind of has to nest in that are part of this conversation. And number two, I think that wherever we're at in our stage of life in how we think of our ambition, I do think there's something to be said for stepping back where we can and asking ourselves, what is the part of this that feels like it has meaning to me, that it brings something to my life, that it makes me curious versus what am I trying to achieve and what am I trying to earn? Because I think that where ambition can really go awry is when we get into that space where it's less about the process of how the ambition manifests in our lives and it's more about the output. And too often that output is I'm earning goodness and I'm earning worthiness. And one of the things that I heard a lot about in the book, in conversations I had with people, we're figuring out different ways that ambition could look. It not necessarily being tied to work or to an output or if you're a student to a grade, but how can I be ambitious for my community? How can I be ambitious about my friendships, about fun? It was almost more a matter of what can we add to the definition of ambition to help us create the kind of lives we want to live where we can. And just that you get to set that definition in the first place, right? That you get to decide that getting the perfect attendance award is not important to you or for your family or whatever it is that what society tells you is that is your metric doesn't have to be the metric you choose for yourself. I'd never really thought about that before. 
Well, and it's so hard because I think to a degree, and I'll speak for myself, it requires some level of kind of deprogramming because these structural expectations and achievements, these are not things I don't think for most of us that we just woke up with some innate sense of like, well, that's the thing my entire life should be oriented around. Of course, I think that it's really upheld by the structures that most of us are making our way through the world in. And so I think it requires a lot of care and attentiveness toward ourselves to be able to say, my ambition might look different from this and that's okay. That doesn't mean I've failed. That means I'm being ambitious about the thing that matters to me most deeply. And sometimes it might look like this, big flashy accomplishment that we're all supposed to be chasing. And sometimes it might not. And both of those are okay. Ambition is often so sort of individually focused, right? Like only one person can come in first or only one person can get the job. But you sort of also talk about, can we make it more interdependent? That ambition can also be sort of thinking about the group instead of the self. How do we start to do that? I really think that the most ambitious thing we can possibly do is care for each other. And I say that because I think that caring about other people, whether it is your immediate family members, whatever that looks like for you, your community, your neighbors, your coworkers, I think it requires so much intention and diligence and patience and all of these things that I think are very bound up in ambition. If we kind of dilute it down to the basic definition. I think that we live in a society that really benefits and profits in some cases from us feeling like we're in it alone. Like the only thing that matters is our individual journey, what we can accomplish by ourselves, self-reliance at every turn. I think that that is so amplified from the time that so many of us are very young that it pushes us further apart. And I think it makes interdependence, caring for each other, being grounded in your community, a sense of collectivity. I think it may, it presents those things as number one, luxuries that we don't all get to have or things that we're supposed to earn. Or number two, signals of failure because you couldn't do it by yourself. Nothing I have accomplished in my life, work-wise, personally, anything you want to throw in there, Number one, none of it has been accomplished with just me. There have always been other people involved who have helped along the way, who have taught me things, who have called me in, who have thought through things with me. And number two, I can't imagine wanting it any differently. Because if we think of ambition is where, as where we invest our care and our attention and time, why would some of that not be going outward to make ambition that is more imaginative, that is more collective, that allows more of us to be in it together, not just during the hard parts, but during the good parts too. And I think that the way we start to do that is having those conversations with each other about what does it mean to prioritize our friendships or our neighbors just like we would that thing at work. For young people, we need to be encouraging what they do so naturally in so many cases anyway. They prioritize friendships the same way they're supposed to be prioritizing grade outputs. That's not being distracted. That's a good thing. And I think the more we can encourage expansive conversations on everything ambition can look like, the more room it gives us to pull more people in and to kind of stand in those definitions together. 
I've been talking to Rainsford Stoffer. She's the author of the brand new book, All the Gold Stars, Reimagining Ambition and the Ways We Strive. Rainsford, tell our listeners where they can find you and your book and everything that you work on. You can find the book hopefully wherever you buy books. I would love it if you picked out your favorite local bookstore, if you're so inclined to order and ordered from them or your local library. Big fan of libraries over here. You can find me on Twitter as long as Twitter exists. My handle is just my first (laughs) name. And then on Instagram, Rainsford underscore Stoffer. I post way too many cat photos there. I'm going to put the link to Rainsford's Twitter and our bookshop link where you can find the book at many independent bookstores, all of that in the show notes for this episode. Rainsford, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.